Well, let me start off by saying, before God, there stands uh, two giants. This is the story this morning of two giants. That's what we're going to be uh, seeing this morning. It's not an original of me. It's one of the Puritans who uh, first said this, that before God, there stands two giants. The first giant is uh, Adam, and the second giant is Christ. And both of them stand before the Father and attached to them as if by hooks on their belts, uh, if you like, are the whole of humanity. Uh, some are attached to Adam, some are attached to Christ. And they've got millions and millions of people, if you like, hanging on their belts. Now that was Thomas Goodwin's uh, idea. And the idea with this is that actually where the giants go, the people go. What the giants do affect what happens to the people that are attached to them. There are two heads of humanity, if you like. There are two kings of our people. Bigger kings than King David, or even King Solomon, or even King Arthur, uh, if he ever existed. Really, the biblical language is not that we're hooked onto them, but that we're united to them, that we're in them. In fact, the expression most used for believers in the Bible is not Christians, but those who are in Christ. So Christians is only used three times. The phrase in Christ is used over 150 times uh, for believers in the New Testament. So you can be in Christ, or you can be in Adam. That's really our choice as mankind. That's what we can uh, do. And which one you are attached to will make a real difference to your life and also your eternal destiny. Because each one giant has done one act that affects all the people that are attached to them. Between those two acts, uh, between them, those two acts have defined history for the whole of humanity. And that's what our passage is about this morning in Romans 5. We had all those wonderful blessings last week, if you remember, from the beginning of Romans 5. Well, this is now looking at how do we get hold of those blessings? If you remember, we said this was like a gospel talk that Paul was giving. And as if a heckler stands up and says, okay, all these blessings, but how? How is it that we can get the blessings if Christ is the one who won them? How can one man's actions result in the blessing for so many? So Paul tells them the story of Adam and of Christ, the two giants. Firstly, we see Adam, and we see that Adam sinned, and all in him were condemned and died. Adam sinned, and all in him were condemned and died. Giant number one comes first. His name is Adam. He was the first man, and was also the first rebel. His one act of sin introduced sin into the world, and because of his sin, death came into the world. We see that there uh, in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, uh, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. I imagine we know the story. God makes man and places him in the Garden of Eden. He gives him one rule to follow, and is warned that if he breaks it, he will surely die. Adam breaks the rule, trusting the word of a serpent over the word of God, his creator. And Adam and his wife are thrown out of the garden and death enters the world. Now just as a slight digression here, I think we must see this as real history. For any of what follows to make sense, 
we must consider Adam to be a real historical person. The comparisons won't really work if he's allegorical or fictional. If there was no actual one act of sin committed by one actual person that results in actual death for all, then there's no reason to believe that there is another actual act of righteousness committed by another actual man that would result in life for all. The whole argument is based on Adam being a real person. You can't have people in a real Jesus if you haven't got people in a real Adam. And actually, this passage is what convinced me of the truth of the Genesis account of creation more than Genesis itself. Genesis 1 is poetry. It's constructed uh, poetry as you go. But this is not poetry. This is a carefully constructed logical argument. An argument that depends on Adam being real. And an argument that argues that death enters the world after sin. Now I know this is something that Christians disagree about, but it's worth considering that. If death enters the world after sin, then death does not exist before sin. But that's what conventional wisdom teaches, doesn't it? In fact, Darwinian evolution over millions of years requires death. That's how it works, isn't it? Survival of the fittest presupposes the non-survival of the weakest. So for me, quite apart from any scientific claims, this is enough for me. But as I say, we each need to make up our own mind on this. But the argument here depends on Adam committing a real transgression and all the negative that results that follow for his descendants are real as well, aren't they? So if you don't take Genesis literally, whatever you come up with needs to address this, this passage here as well. But going back to the passage, that one act resulted in death for all people. It's the ultimate statistic, isn't it? One in one people die. If you bar Enoch and Elijah and any believers who are still around when Jesus returns. But generally speaking, everybody dies. Nothing is certain, as they say, but death and taxes. But it's more than just physical death here that it's talking about. It's spiritual death and it's final death. Spiritual death, because Adam didn't just die physically, he died spiritually. The day that he sinned, he was separated from God. And all his children, in one sense, are born spiritually dead. So Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 and 2, you'll find it on the back of your notice sheet. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We are naturally alienated from God. Because of Adam, we start dead to God. We need to be resurrected spiritually to even know God. So it's talking about spiritual death as well that follows from Adam. We're spiritually dead. And then it also means final death. Because it speaks here not just of death, but of condemnation. You see that down in verse 16. And one man's gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. The death that Adam brought into the world was not just the death of the body, but an eternal condemnation in what the Bible calls hell. 
eternal uh, eternity away from the smiling face of God. Instead, experiencing his wrath and anger. And this is the fate of all in Adam. Why? Because in Adam, all sinned. When the giant took the forbidden fruit, everybody in him took the forbidden fruit. When Adam declared war on his creator, all in him declared war on their creator. It still works like that if you think about it. Uh, If our country declares war, then we're all at war, aren't we? You're fair game for the enemy. I remember a a movement a few years ago called Not In My Name. People sort of put it up on their uh, windows and things, uh, saying, well, you know, we're at war, but not in my name. But realistically, for that to be true, you actually need to change sides, don't you? You need to get a new nationality. Because the way it works is that our country is at war, not just the leaders who make the decisions. Adam fell... And with him, the whole of humanity fell. Because we are his family. He is our head and we are in him. And now we are all born outside of Eden. Because Adam, our king, our head, our ancestor, got himself kicked out. So now all of us are born outside of God's blessing, uh, outside of Eden. We don't have to be kicked out individually, because we actually started off kicked out. That's our state as we begin. And that's actually what's alluded to in verse, uh, verse 12. So where it says there in the second part, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Where it says there, all sinned, the word isn't the normal word for uh, because all sinned. It's not the normal word for because. It can be translated in whom or in that. In whom seems most likely, and most commentators agree that's the best translation, It's quite strange then that actually most modern translations go with because. Death spreads to all here because we are in Adam. The source is contaminated. And so all taken from the source is contaminated too. It is also true that all sin, but that is the evidence of the contamination, isn't it? Uh, So I think about my family. There's one part of my family, I won't name them because it's being recorded, there's one part of my family that uh, have a talent for falling out with people. Um, it's often said that if you put this side of the family in, a, in an empty room, they'd still find someone to fall out with. Uh, that's just the way that they are. But falling out with people, if you're particularly good at falling out with people, <laughs> it's not a great skill to have, is it? But uh, that doesn't make you part of my family. But being part of my family uh, makes you fall out with people. Or if you're, certainly if you're on that side of the family. It's an inclination that we're born with, a contamination that shows itself in our lives. So it's not just that we copy, it's actually that we're born with this in us. And this contamination causes death. Even if you can't see many traces of this contamination in some people, it's there in all people. How do we know? Because all people die. Even when there's no law, people die. Have a look at verse 13. For sin, was as, uh, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. And it goes on. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So it's saying even where commandments haven't been broken, even when infringements of the law are not counted, people still died. There's evidence there that they were still sinners. 
So death reigns over all, even when specific commands have not been broken, as with Adam and with others. He transgressed the law, gave him a command, but even when there's no law, people still sin and die. The evidence that you've sinned in your life is that you die. And all die. So what does that tell you about all people? Naturally, we are in Adam. But there's one thing that we're told about the giant Adam that we're not going to be told about Christ in a few moments' time. We're told at the end of verse 14 that um, Adam, who was a type of the one to come. We're told there at the end of verse 14 that Adam is a type of the one to come, that is Christ. Adam is a type. The word in Greek, Greek is typos or typos. Really lazy translators, isn't it, when they just do that and sort of move the, uh, the Greek word and just say, oh, I'll just keep the Greek phrase and make it sound English. But that's what they've done. Um, but it means an imprint from a stamp. So a, a picture, a pattern. Do you get that idea? So it's used in Acts 7.44, again on the back of your notice sheets. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he had spoken to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. That word pattern there is the same uh, word. God has weaved pictures of his son into the pages of the Old Testament, into the history of the world. And we see this all over the Bible. We're going to see it even more in a few weeks' time as we start looking at Leviticus. Adam is supposed to be a pattern of Christ, a type of Christ. What that means is that some of the things that are true for Adam will be true of Christ too. He was put there as a picture of Jesus. But in many ways we're going to see that actually it was totally different. There are similarities, but there are differences. So in what ways is he alike and not alike the giant Adam? It's like sort of spot the difference with giants. There we go. Uh, Our second point is Jesus died and all in him were justified and live. Jesus died and all in him were justified and live. Giant number two comes into history much later. But actually he's been around much longer than Adam. His act was the opposite of Adam's act. Adam's act was an act of disobedience. Jesus' act was an act of obedience. Adam's act was an act of transgression. Jesus' act was an act of righteousness. Adam's act was death. Jesus' act brought life. So instead of bringing condemnation and death, he brought the free gift of righteousness and life. What was the one act that it's talking about? It's talking about his own death on the cross. His death brought about justification by faith alone. That's what we've been seeing through the rest of Romans. And through that eternal life to all who put their trust in Jesus. Have a look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, we must pause here for a second and ask what it means here by all men. Firstly, we must say it's not just referring to gentlemen. Ladies are included in that phrase as well. Secondly, we must say, though, that these sentences are set in parallel, but actually their meaning is a bit different. We know this from the context of the letter and the context of the passage. Paul is not teaching here something called universalism. 
the idea that everyone will go to heaven. His letter is clear that it's justification by faith. No faith, no justification. In other words, condemnation remains. What it does mean then is that all the people who are hooked to their belt, if you like, all the people who are in them, all the people attached to them, are affected by this. This is what it's talking about by all men. For all in Adam, that means condemnation and death. For all in Christ, that means justification and life. And the all in both cases does have the idea of all sorts of people as well, Jew and Gentile, which has been a big issue in the letter, hasn't it? It doesn't matter what your background is, it doesn't matter what the colour of your skin is or what it says on your passport, what matters is whether you're in Adam or in Christ. And in Christ there are all sorts of people who differ, that are united in Christ. Black and white, rich and poor, Remainer and Brexiteer. Even that? Yeah. Only Jesus can bring us peace and harmony with each other. That's what we learn in the Bible, brings all people together. Now, Adam has all these groups in as well, but in Adam, they're all at war with each other. They're all kicking at each other on the hooks, if you like. Adam is not a great place to be, and he is destined for destruction. But here's the amazing thing. Even though we are born in Adam, we can unhook ourselves to him and hook ourselves to Christ. <coughs> there is a bond that's stronger than the humanity that binds us to Adam. That bond is faith. Faith binds us to Christ. It makes what's true for him true for us. It hooks us onto his belt. It puts us in Christ. Even though we start in Adam, the moment we put our faith in Jesus, the Father transfers us and puts us in Christ. All his merits become our merits. We're covered by his righteousness that's counted to us. It's as though God looks at us and he sees Christ, because we're in him. That's why, in one sense, there are only those two giants, are there, before God. All in Christ are seen as Christ, the righteous one. All in Adam are seen as Adam, the condemned one. Now this throws up a huge question for most of us, I think. Is this fair? Why should I be condemned because I am in Adam if it wasn't me who sinned, it was Adam? Well, three answers. Two for everyone and then one especially for believers. Is this fair? Well, for believers, uh, sorry, for, for everyone, uh, this is how the normal world functions. The idea that every man is an island is a relatively new idea on the scene of human thought. And it's not really reflected in the world that we live in. So two examples, countries and families. As we said before, countries don't work like this. There is a head of state who makes decisions for the state. Everyone in that state is thought of as having made that decision because their head made it. So you might hear newspaper headlines this week, you probably will something like this. France opposes Brexit deal. Now when it says France, it doesn't mean the whole, every single person in the country. It means the head of states, doesn't it? Because the head of state speaks for the country. But we're quite happy to say France is against Brexit or something like that. In the same way, Adam speaks for Adam, the whole of his people. Christ speaks for Christ. They make decisions for their people. 
So that's the way countries work. But it works like that in families too. So let me ask you a question. Where did you choose to be born? Now it might seem like I chose where to be born because I was born in Yorkshire. So, uh, you know, if I'd have got my pick, I'd have done it anyway. But we don't choose generally where we're born, do we? In fact, we never choose where we're born. Our parents do. In many cases down history, it was actually your parents' parents who chose where you were born, or your parents' parents' parents who moved to a certain area. We don't make the choice for ourselves. So that means that I can't play international football for Brazil. There's two reasons for that. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Yeah, one, I'm no good at football. And second, I wasn't born in, in Brazil. That's a fact, whether I like it or not. That's how it works, isn't it? You don't choose where you're born. Well, let me ask you a different question. Why did you choose your parents? Now, again, it might seem like I did, because I've got a lovely mum. My mum's awesome. But we, we don't choose, do we, whose womb we come out of. And no one seriously argues that we should correct this. This is just the way it is. But we can still change our nationalities, can't we, once it's happened. We can still get adopted into another family. But these are things that are outside of us, to start with. Second point for everyone. Why is this fair? Well... We're like Adam anyway. Not just family resemblance, we act like him. What I mean is that we're not just sinners because we are in Adam, though that's true. We do actually sin, don't we? We actually go along with that. It'd be like complaining uh, about that. and ter- um, it'd be like Complaining about it would be like turning up dressed like a miner in a flat cap with a ferret and saying, hey up, folk, keep, keep calling me sin. Folk keep calling me a Yorkshireman, it's not right. You can't complain at that, can you, that people are calling you a Yorkshireman if you go around acting like a Yorkshireman. I should have gone with a Frenchman, shouldn't I? That would have been a bit clearer. Um, you know, baguette under the arm. You can't complain, can you, if you're acting like you are from that country and then go, oh, everyone keeps calling me a Frenchman, everyone keeps calling me a Yorkshireman. We all act like Adam anyway. Verse 12 does work the other way around too. All do sin. We might possibly have an argument, might possibly, if you were counted a sinner in Adam, but you've never sinned. But in Adam, all are sinners, and they do actually sin. We're all born now with an inbuilt inclination to sin. The sort of posh theological term for that is original sin. But we don't fight that in life, we go along with it. So no one has to be taught to sin, do they? We do it by nature. I remember chatting to some... Uh, Mormons once, they don't believe in original sin. They believe everyone's born innocent. And uh, I remember sort of say, they were saying, you know, oh, well, yeah, children are born innocent. And they said, have you had any children? No. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you'll understand. But we're born with that inbuilt inclination to sin, aren't we? So no one can claim actual innocence. So we, we don't just, we're not just in Adam, we act like Adam, we, we sin as well. And then, if you're thinking this isn't fair, third point, for believers. You've got to see that the mechanics of Adam's condemnation are the same as the mechanics, in many ways, for our justification. What I mean is that if we are counted righteous because of our head, Christ, well, if we throw out the idea of heads, the ones who affect many, then we throw out our own justification. 
And we throw out the Bible because this is what it's teaching here. If it seems unfair, well, it is in one sense. Because actually we've been forgiven. And forgiveness is never about fairness, is it? It's not about justice in that sense, it's about grace. If we cry for justice, we'll get it. But it will be us being condemned. Paul's made that clear in the rest of the letter. So this is just exposing the mechanics of justification. How it goes to many. It's to do with our union with Christ. A union decreed by the Father, brought about by faith, and put into effect by the Holy Spirit. And this is the way that God can bring billions, a blessing to billions through history. But this is also the mechanics of our condemnation if we refuse to put our trust in Christ. We cannot believe in one while denying the other. It's all part of one mechanism that justifies the ungodly who believe and condemns the ungodly who won't. So the big question this morning is where are you? Where are you? If you are in Christ, if you're attached to him by faith, then Christ's status is your status. Righteous before God. God couldn't see you as more righteous. You have the righteousness of Christ. The reality in your life might be different, but in God's eyes you're spotless. If you're in Christ, then his destiny is your destiny. Eternal life with God in glory. What a wonderful future to look forward to. Not based on you, but based on him, the giant you're attached to. But if you're still in Adam, though, well, his status is your status. Condemned by God. No matter how well you've tried to stop yourself sinning, your status remains the same if you're attached to Adam. Condemned by God and under his wrath. If you are still in Adam, as well, your destiny is his destiny and vice versa. His destiny is your destiny. Death. Eternal death in hell. Now, I'm not being morbid to, uh, here. I'm telling you as it is. If you die in Adam, your destiny is hell. And it's the same for all those attached to him. The best in Adam, you see, is destined for hell. And the least in Christ is destined for glory. It makes such a difference who you're attached to. Surely, though, it matters how good you are. Surely. I mean, didn't God give us rules to follow? Doesn't he want us to be good? Well, yes, he does want us to be good. But law and rules is not the way to do it. If it hadn't been, then people like the Pharisees in the Bible would have been praised by Jesus, not condemned. No, actually, what we need is connection to Christ. That same faith that justifies us also sanctifies us, makes us gradually more like Jesus in our lives. That connection by faith to him is not arbitrary. It makes a difference to us. That's what it does. So what's the place of rules then? Why did God give the law? Are you ready for a shocking answer? Have a look at verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. That's a bit of a shocking answer, isn't it? The law was given to increase the trespass. In one sense, the law was given to make things worse. Why? Let's read the rest of the verse. 
But where sin increased, grace abounded, and all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So given that uh, God wants grace to reign, that's why he's, he's given us the law, he wants grace to be shown. So given that grace is what God wants to show, should we sin lots to allow God to be glorified by showing us grace? Should we sin that grace may abound? Well, that's exactly the question we're going to start off with next week. But if that's the question that we're asking here, which I think many of us will be, it probably means we're understanding this passage the right way. The way that Paul understood it and his hearers did. Can I just say, spoiler alert, no, we shouldn't sin that grace may abound, by no means. But it's a reminder, though, that Paul means what he's saying. Paul was right. Thomas Goodwin was right. There really are just two heads of humanity. Two giants of history, and it matters who you're hooked to. So where are you this morning? Are you in Christ, justified? Or are you in Adam, condemned? And if you're not in Christ, will you put your trust in him, put your hook on his, and enjoy all those blessings that he brings, and him himself. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Christ. Father, thank you that if we are attached to him by faith, if we are in him, we enjoy all those blessings that we heard about last week, and we look forward to a future with you uh, in glory. Father, help us to keep trusting in him. Father, pray that that link would uh, cause us not just to be justified, but to be sanctified. Father, help us to live for you day by day. But Father, let's never lose sight of that grace that is pictured here, that Father, if we are in Christ, he has covered our sin, and that we are justified by trusting in him alone. Help us to believe that and live that out this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.